and hear God's word. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying again, you shall say to the children of Israel, whoever of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who gives any of the descendants to Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his people because he has given some of the descendants to Molech to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name. And if the people of the land should in any way hide their eyes from the man when he gives some of his descendants to Molech and they do not kill him, then I will set my face against that man and against his family and I will cut him off from his people and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit harlotry with Molech. And the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For everyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood shall be upon him. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man marries a woman and her mother, it is wickedness. They shall be burned with fire, both he and they, that there may be no wickedness among you. If a man mates with an animal, he shall surely be put to death. And you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and mates with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, his father's daughter or his mother's daughter and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a wicked thing. And they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He shall bear his guilt. If a man lies with a woman during her sickness and uncovers her nakedness, he has exposed her flow. And she has uncovered the flow of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from their people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister nor your father's sister. For that would uh, uncover his near of kin. They shall bear their guilt. If a man lies with his uncle's wife and he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin and they shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them that the land where I am bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you. For they commit all these things and therefore I abhor them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean. You shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I've separated from you as unclean and you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord am holy and you and have separated you from among the peoples that you should be mine. A man or a woman who is 
A medium and or who has familiar spirits shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you once more for uh, your word. We thank you for Leviticus chapter 20. We thank you for all of the holiness code as it is found here in Leviticus. And so much of it uh, is repeated in the New Testament. Lord, give us discerning ears and hearts. Let us take these things to heart. We humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now in the holiness code uh, to a new section where certain heinous sins are considered as having already happened. The Lord is saying, now if this has happened, and the argument becomes what to do in such cases, it is here especially that the heinousness of these particular sins appear greatly underlying the need for holiness, which is the great overarching argument of this passage, chapter 17 to the end, the need for holiness among the people of God. Here is, I would say, one of the great arguments for holiness, perhaps the greatest. It is that the man who lives like this, uh, the sinner who sins in a bold and a daring fashion, will either be dealt with by his fellow men, he will be punished, or else God will deal with him, which is far worse. In other words, God is saying there is no way to ignore his law and to live a life of rampant sin and to get away with it, which is, of course, what the unholy man thinks. He wouldn't live like he did if, if he ever really believed that he would have to pay a price. As Peter says uh, in First Peter, uh, ever since the days of Noah, Noah, they've been saying, where is the promise of his coming? They imagine it's all a fairy tale. The Lord will never come. They can, well, they can just get away with it. But God is, is here, as he does in many places in his word, assuring Israel, and he is assuring the church today that the wicked will not get off unpunished. That what the wicked imagines is untrue. And this is actually one of the greatest encouragements to holiness there is. In other words, now I was saying this earlier, we're dealing with the whole question of the threats of Scripture, which the confession of faith uh, includes under the rubric of saving faith. Saving faith not only believes the promises, it believes the threats of Scripture. This is one of the threats. And you say, well, you don't find any threats in the New Testament. Well, I would say to such a man, have you ever read the New Testament? It isn't just the Old Testament, it's the New. The threats can be found in both. And in fact, I find the threats of the New far more terrifying. What is the value of believing the threats, we ask? Are they not just there to frighten us? Well, yes, they are. They are meant to frighten us. But do you see how that actually helps us? How you're helping a man to be holy by frightening him. Because what you're frightening him with is the danger of sin. And sin is dangerous. It's terribly dangerous. So this becomes one of the many motives to a life of true holiness. And we are getting a very complete picture here. You have to reckon with the threats. You have to reckon with the reality of punishment and of hell and of judgment. It is good for a man to see what is due to him for his sin. And the woe that awaits the man who continues on in a life of sin and who just has his fill of sin but never, well, never thinks to confess his sin to God or to turn from them or who never seeks earnestly to live a life of holiness by God's grace. So there is a kind of general analysis of what we have here in chapter 20. Again, as I say, it belongs 
under the threats of scripture. But let me be more specific. It's also helpful here to remember that Israel was a nation. Uh, if you if you remember, I remember reading this in Burkhoff years ago, there are three main stages in the development of the people of God. First, they were a clan or a family. Then they were a nation. Then they were a church. Well, we're in the second stage. We progress from Genesis into Leviticus. Now God is constituting his people into a nation. And how does that help us to understand Leviticus chapter 20? Well, it's important, as I say, to recognize that this was God's work of bringing them into a nation which has uh, important ramifications for how we are meant to understand what is called the penal code of the old covenants. As a nation, it was obviously necessary that certain punishments be prescribed for various crimes. And that is true of every nation. The law uh, of any nation not only prohibits certain crimes, but in the event that the crime has occurred, it also prescribes punishment and the form of punishment Now, that is a fascinating question to consider for several reasons, the whole question of punishment in the civil sphere. Uh, One of the reasons is because the forms of punishment that are prescribed here for uh, the old covenant nation of Israel seem awfully severe to us, don't they? I think inevitably they do. And we would say, in contrast, that we live in an age that is much more permissive For instance, the death penalty is rare today, whereas it was a commonplace in Israel. Uh, Today, criminals uh, commonly go free or go unpunished. And we would do well here in in light of the broader concerns of holiness, which are corporate, to ask whether such a state of things is good for society, especially if holiness is your goal. Again, the question is uh, whether it is beneficial for the criminal to go unpunished. Uh, recently, I read, now I, I almost never give political analysis or my own opinion, but let me, let me just do so for a moment. Recently, I read that as a nation, we don't have an over-incarceration problem, we have an under-incarceration problem, and I tend to agree. I would say as a nation, we are far too lenient with criminals. This is a national sin. And our society is suffering the consequences. You have a society that is unholy, Because we don't know how to handle sin. We don't punish the evildoer. But that also raises another interesting question, and that is how the Christian should feel about the death penalty. The death penalty is the most common form of punishment here, and and, and sometimes in very alarming ways. You see two people who are to be burned to death, burned at the stake, you might say. Well, I've never understood the Christian objection to the death penalty. We find God prescribing the death penalty in the days of Noah. We find it constantly in the Old Covenant, first here, but many places after this. And then the Apostle Paul uses the imagery of the sword to describe the power of the state in Romans chapter 13. That strongly implies the idea of the death penalty. For what else is a sword good for except to punish the wrongdoer with death? And so I would say if you read Romans chapter 13 together with Leviticus 20, which I considered doing, but I didn't. But maybe you you might want to do that if you are troubled about the death penalty. I would say these two passages go quite well together. They reflect God's intentions for society in every age that the state would punish the evildoer in many cases with death. That is, in fact, one of the most important functions of the state and of a well-ordered, well-functioning society. 
That is a controversial statement, but I, I firmly believe I have the Bible on my side from beginning to end. Another point that is worth considering here, and perhaps I, I chuckle because I, I, I can almost hear you asking the question, now, Pastor, you sound like a theonomist. Well, I'm not a theonomist. I think you all know that by now. But it is an interesting question, the, the, the question of theonomy, especially with reference to the penal code. Again, I will say I am not a theonomist. But I would share with you, just as a note of interest, that the question of theonomy, I was surprised to discover years ago, actually has to do with the various laws of punishment. It's something um, Greg Bonson points out in his book, By What Standard? The real question, the point of controversy, is the extent to which the old covenant penal code is, uh, is present today or not. Now, I just leave you with that. that my interest is not in exploring the question of theonomy, except to, uh, to assure you that that is not where I'm coming from. But I think a more helpful way to look at this passage, aside from what I'm all, I've already said, is uh, to consider it along these particular lines. The first of which is the principle of punishment itself. It is a principle that you find runs through all of Scripture, and that is the overarching principle that we are dealing with here. In other words, as we've seen in Romans, the whole question of the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death, Paul says. We just saw that. And Paul, he, he says just before that, the end of such things is death. Two verses before that, Romans chapter 6, verse 21. Uh, the fruit of such a life is death, Romans chapter 7, verse 5. The principle of punishment. This is something that Paul has been at pains uh, to, to, to make us see. Us along with the Romans. Do you understand what sin leads to? A life of sin. Do you, do you know what's at the end of the road? Do you really think that you can live a life of sin with impunity just because, well, you said your profession in the church? Will the God of heaven and earth not punish the evildoer? Well, the testimony of scripture always is he will. Surely he will. This, in fact, uh, is, an, is an absolute moral necessity. It is something that even God himself is not free not to do. And we also see, as we saw in the case of Romans, that there's nothing unjust about this. If you look at the sins or the crimes, we would call them on a national level, which are spoken of here, the only scandal is, is that such things were ever committed, not that they should be punished. And this, as I say, is a, is a, is a principle which is carried forward into the New Testament. There is the idea that the sinner must pay the wages of death for his sin. And that he must suffer the pains of hell. For, for what he suffers in this life is only the beginning. And then there is the idea that criminals must be punished by the civil government. And finally, there is the notion of church discipline in the church. And so you have a, a varied application of the idea of punishment. That's the first thing I would say. But the second thing is this, uh, as we've often seen. So we see here again that God is making a distinction for that is what holiness is. We become aware here as we have uh, uh, of a contrast between two kinds of people. God is saying uh, here is the difference between the kind of people uh, wh whom the land spews out. The kind of people against whom my wrath is revealed on the one hand and the kind of people who are meant to inherit it. The kind of people 
upon whom God bestows his favor. He's making a difference between two kinds of people. But at the same time, as soon as I put it that way, it almost makes you nervous because you say, wait a second, uh, both of those kinds of people are really the same person, aren't they? And that is precisely where uh, the, holy, the exhortation of the holiness code, especially in a passage like this, really hits home because you realize in describing the kind of person whom the land vomits out, he is describing me. Or at the very least, he's describing the kind of person I once was, to use the language of the New Testament, which we keep coming back to, the old and the new. He's describing the kind of person I was before grace ever came into my life. And he's reminding me and warning me what would happen to me if ever I should seek to go back. If ever I should seek to say, as the foolish man says, let me sin so that grace may abound. Well, let the warnings come strongly to you if ever you should think of that or the threatenings of Scripture. And so in this contrast and this distinction, he's not just describing two kinds of people, but the same person uh, living two kinds of lives, the old and the new. So holiness is a life separated from sinners. That's what we've seen over and over again. It's a life devoted to God. Did you notice how in this passage, in two places, in the midst of uh, these terrible threatenings, there, are, there is this refrain of holiness. He says, consecrate yourself, give yourself to me, be holy for I am holy. He keeps coming back to this. The holy life is a life devoted to God. And so he says, consecrate yourselves, therefore, verse 7, and be holy for I, the Lord, I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And then again in verse 22 to the end, I'll just read a little bit. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them that the land where I'm bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. And on he goes. You see, he's saying, not only am I vomiting them out, but I might do the same to you. So the threatenings are meant for the people of God, aren't they? Not just for the evildoer. Once more, the Lord is telling us what the life of holiness is like. It is a life, plain and simple, of walking in and observing his statutes. It is also, and this is important, if I'd kept reading, this would have come out, though I read it earlier. Uh, just after verse 22, the Lord is saying, don't walk in their ways. Don't walk in their statutes. And so there isn't just this principled life of obedience, as Al Martin puts it. We're walking in his ways. But there's also this determined and principled rejection of the world and its ways, its customs, its values, its statutes. Isn't that interesting, by the way, to notice the way the Lord is saying uh, that these are the statutes of the sinner? You see, the sinner doesn't call them sin. The, the sinner looks at something like homosexuality or adultery and he says, isn't it wonderful? Or a man worshiping his own God, but not the true God. He says, oh, uh, the thing is wonderful. Uh, he even codifies it in his law. The world has not only its own values, but its own laws, its statutes. And because it codifies these things, the world today just as it has always done, demands allegiance. It demands obedience. It says, here is the law of the land. You have to obey it. And yet God is saying, these are the things which are hateful to me. These are the things which I set my face against. And he who would be mine must do so as well. He mustn't go along with the world. He must stand with God. And he must let the Lord know 
that he will serve him always. Another thing that stands out, though, in these refrains are the reasons which God supplies. And there's two main reasons. The first is simply, as we've seen over and over again, I am the Lord your God. So the first reason to be holy, which means not only a determination to keep his laws, but a principled opposition to the statutes of the land. That is, the the sinful values of the world. The first reason is that he is the Lord and he is our God. Plain and simple. Is that, I ask you, beloved, not reason enough to be holy? To hear his voice speaking to you, I am the Lord your God. There's even in this, you see, an element of ownership. It's the last thing he says, that you should be mine. In fact, uh, there was a famous book written, uh, They Shall Be Mine. I don't remember who wrote it, but it came to mind as I was reading this. That's what the Lord is saying about a holy people. They shall be mine, my own peculiar possession. The people in whom I delight, that the world, uh, the, the world derides them and rejects them. Do you see, when he says this, he's declaring his desire for us. He's making his claim on our lives. He declares that he not only commands, but he sanctifies, he separates And then in making us his own, he strongly invites us to reciprocate his love. But he also warns us what rejecting such love will mean. And so a second reason is because he will set his face against the evildoer. Even if that person should be found in the walls of the church, God will set his face against him. And let the woe that is promised to him and which appears before your eyes strongly dissuade you from ever walking in his ways. Lest you should similarly become an object of his derision. Uh, Think just for a moment of what it means for the Lord to say, I will set my face against you. Is there anything more terrible than that? And yet such is the Lord's declared and avowed intention for the wicked. But I think the real great point that this passage is making more than anything else that I've said thus far is that we might see, and and I I just smile at the way that this fits in so nicely with what we will consider next time, because this is precisely the theme uh, in, in, in the next passage of Romans, that is the sinfulness of sin. Does that not appear to you not only in not only in the act of sin, but in the punishment? Oh, God says, consider the defilement that sin is its sinfulness. Look at how it's described throughout this passage. The man who commits idolatry, God says, defiles my sanctuary and profanes my holy name. Verse 3. Did you ever think of sin like that? As that which defiles the sanctuary and profanes the holy name of God. But that's exactly what sin is. It is further, God says, to prostitute ourselves, to be unfaithful to the God who loved us and married us. It makes us, God says, spiritual adulterers. Again, that is what sin is always. It's nothing less than sheer ingratitude and unfaithfulness. It ignores everything that God is and does. You see, at the same time, our whole tendency is to overlook sin. God even says so here. He says, if you hide your eyes, and the truth is, that's verse 4, the truth is we're always doing that. We're always turning away. We're always pretending it isn't there or it isn't so bad. But God can never do that. God can never wink or smile at sin or exchange pleasantries with the sinner in the midst of his sin. He can never behold sin but for what it is. 
He always sees sin in its true colors. And what God is saying here is the holy man will too. He goes on. Sin is perversion. It is an abomination. It is wickedness. It is guilt itself. Sin. Again, the world calls it this. God says statutes, laws, something positive. Two men getting married. The law of the land. Or the worship of demons. Adultery. A man should be praised for this, the world says. We should celebrate it. Oh no, God says, I never smile on sin. I hate it. Am I arguing for theocracy? I said I wasn't arguing for theonomy. Am I arguing for theocracy? No, I'm not. I'm only saying don't go along with the world in these things. Don't smile at the man who worships false gods. Recognize his sin for what it is and plead, plead with him that he might turn and repent and be saved. Lest these things fall upon him. The homosexual, the adulterer, the idolater. You see, these things are now commonplace, just as they were in Moses' day. And they are not punished. But I will surely punish them, God says, even if men will not. I have set my face against the evildoer, and no one can keep me from punishing him for his sin. Such is the fate of the wicked, God says. And hell today is full of men and women for whom this is true. Those who committed such things and against whom God set his face now forevermore. At the time that they were living such a life, they didn't think God was serious. They pretended it was otherwise. They painted sin in promising colors. And they ignored that God is the Lord. And yet on the other hand, if you think about the man who walks with God, the blessed man, Psalm 1. Do you see how happy are they whose God is the Lord and who walk in his ways and who reject the sinful values of society? Yes, society may revile them. It may even punish them for their refusal uh, to accept and even to practice the customs and the laws of the day. But God sees. That's the great overarching point here. He sees the crime of the wicked and he sees the righteousness of the righteous. And he ever sets his face upon his own. He loves them dearly. He will defend and protect them. You see, that's what holiness is all about. It's about standing with God. It's about enjoying his love, his protection Enjoying his statutes. Uh, it could be seen like this. It's, it's about a decision. Whose side are you on? Whom will you serve? Do you go in with the world and its ways? Or do you go in with God? Part of how you know where you stand this very day is how you feel about sin. And not just your own, but others. Uh, do you remember what David said? My eyes shed streams of waters because they do not keep they do not keep your laws. There is sin that surrounds us even today. There is sin that surrounds us just as soon as we walk out of this building. And I ask you, do you see it for what it is? Perversion, wickedness, harlotry. Do you see it as that which deserves to be punished and which in due time surely will be? If, if man will not, then God will. Or are you still winking at sin and pretending it isn't so bad after all? God is saying here to man, it's time to wake up, to see sin for what it is, and to consider the end to which such things will lead a man. 
And when a man sins in your company, do not smile and remain polite. That is the danger you see. They hide, the people hide their eyes. That's what God is saying. They pretend nothing has happened. No, the goal, God says, is that wickedness would not be found among you. That holiness should become not just an individual or private, but a corporate concern. Of course, we know the nations cannot do this. We've, well, I've been saying that throughout. The nations, the nation in which we live today, has codified uh, unholiness itself. But here God's saying this to the church, not just to the individual Christian, but to the church today. Just as he said to the nation of Israel in days gone by, be holy even as I am holy, he says to the body, corporately. And deal with the wicked and the evildoer in your midst. That is the rationale for church discipline even today. Lest wickedness be multiplied in your midst. Lest you be corrupted by the defilements of sin. Lest holiness itself uh, should not be found among you. There's one final thing that I want to say. And it's that ultimately it is this chapter among many others that explains the cross to us. You see... The cross makes no sense to a man who doesn't understand a chapter like this. The man who says, do such things really deserve such punishments? Why doesn't God just let the sinner off? Well, the answer to the question, if you've been paying attention at all, gets at the essence of who God is and how he feels about sin. God is holy. That's the answer. And God, as one who is holy, never makes light of sin. He cannot. Sin is offensive to him. He abhors it. And he abhors the man who does it. He hates the wicked. If you understand that, you will say that the real wonder is not that God punishes the sinner, but that in any case he doesn't. The real wonder is not his justice, it's his mercy. For you read a chapter like this and you say, am I really free of blame? Will God let me off? Surely he will not. To use the language of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you won't get out until you've paid the last penny. That's, I, well, no, that is the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapter 5. What hope is there for a sinner with a God full of holy, wrathful vengeance like this? Well, there's another way, God is saying. And he's been telling us all about it in Leviticus. And he'll keep on telling us all about it all through the Bible. All the way, and especially up to the New Testament. And it is the way of atonement. Always situate the concerns of holiness within the broader concern of the grace of God and atonement. And realize uh, that a chapter like this is precisely what tells us not only why atonement was necessary, why a life must be forfeited if the sinner would ever get off, but also the means by which atonement is achieved. The whole idea of atonement is this, that God would inflict the penalty on another. Not that he would forgo the penalty. That's what man wants. He says, God, just let me off. But God says, I can by no means clear the wicked. I can by no means deny my law, which is to deny myself. Oh, but I may inflict the penalty on another. One who is able and who is worthy both to stand in our place and to offer himself to be bruised for our iniquities. Such a one uh, cannot be found numbered among the bulls and the goats and the animals of the old covenant. How obvious that is. But to think that the son of God himself should take upon uh, our nature and to become one like us. And then to say to the father in agreement with the father. In what we call the pactum salutis, the eternal covenant of redemption. 
I will offer myself for them. Lay their sins on me, Father. And I will pay the penalty for their sins. What is the penalty? Well, the penalty is laid out here. It's laid out in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It is the wages of sin is death. Uh, Even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself uh, to this point, obeying himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. But nothing less than this would ever really pay the penalty. Don't you see that here? You won't get out until you've paid the last penalty. Oh, but supposing that you have. Supposing that the penalty has in fact been paid in full. What then? Would God be just still to hold the transgressor uh, guilty for his sin? Those whose transgressions were laid on Jesus and for whom he died and suffered the penalty due to them. No, he would not. For to speak of God's holiness is to speak of his justice. And God is thus, thus just both in inflicting his wrath on the sin bearer. For he really did take our sins and bear them for us. But God is also therefore just in justifying those for whom he died. Romans chapter 3 verse 26. He is both just and the justifier. For there can be no more penalty once it has been inflicted. You see, this is the penalty that awaits the wicked. Oh, that they might see it. But especially, oh, that they might see that penalty inflicted upon Christ on the cross and cry out to him. Oh, God, let his death be mine. And the great wonder of all is that this is really more than anything else what makes us holy. It isn't that we decided to be holy. It's what God has done for us. It is his act of separating us and making us his own. How did he do it? By sending his own son into the world to die for us. That we should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel. And that's the secret of holiness. That's the rationale for holiness. It's that God takes us entirely out of the realm and the ways of sin and the sinner. He takes us out of this world. He takes us out of the reach of death. And he says, they shall be mine. For Christ, my son, has died for them. You see, he's not only taken us out of the realm of sin, but of punishment. Death can never touch you now. I know we're going to die unless Christ should come again. But we will not die as the wages of sin. Don't you see that? Death for us will be but a falling asleep in Jesus and going immediately into his presence. In that sense, there is no death. There is no fear of death for the sinner, for we've already died. And we've been raised with Christ. And now we are holy. And now we are called to a life of holiness. Everything that we've been considering in Romans chapter 6 just floods in and comes to mind here. That is the greatest reason to be holy. It's that Christ has died for you. So that death as punishment, death as penalty now can never touch you. And will you not, therefore, live for him? Amen. And let us respond now in praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 626 from the Blue Hymnal.